Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Hello? I can. <laughs> oh, God. It, it I was been, you. It was me. I was messing with the stupid uh, uh, thing. <laughs> you know, the soundboard. Yeah, that lets me play a foghorn, which uh, I, I don't know if you can hear it now. Mm-hmm. But uh, is, are you? did you hear a foghorn? No, I just made one in my okay. – I made one with my mouth. Mm. Could you, did you hear that foghorn? I, I heard your foghorn. Anyway, <laughs> I, you know, anyway, these, I, I got all, everything working, and, and now I'm at uh, work, and maybe something is different with my audio settings. Anyway. Well, you're here. <sighs> we think it's, it's working. Here's the main thing, Ben, is people say we should talk less about food safety and we should have more audio effects. That's what they say. Well, I, right? I think – yeah. <laughs> And I, you know, um, you know my nickname because you call it to you call me uh, Zippy all the time, um, and in fact, I think it's even how you have me set in your text messages. Like you get texts from Zippy. I think we may call you uh, Skippy. Skippy, <laughs> the Skippy Show. Do you? And, th- this is this is I, I th- this is th- you're you're too young for this. But do you remember there was a TV show uh, called Skippy? It wasn't about the peanut butter. Um, it was about an Australian kangaroo. Do you remember this? No, oh, I'm yeah. too I'm too young for that. Well, and it might have only been a, a, a U.S. thing, not a Canadian thing. But anyway, Could have been. was that on PBS? I don't remember. I watched it after school. Um, that's yeah. about all I remember. And it was us. It was a. Uh, it was in Australia because the kangaroos, and it was his name was Skippy. And and uh, I just thought it was like it was part of that whole genre of uh, shows about animals, like Lassie and Flipper and Skippy. Did you have uh, Hammy Hamster? You know this one? No. Um, so this was my favorite. It is. Uh, what was it called? Adventures on the Riverbank. Tales of the Riverbank. Um, and it was a BBC. No, not BBC. Channel Four. It's the other BBC. Um, but then it was brought to uh, Canadian TV. It was on uh, the the CBC, and it was about this uh, hamster that moved around. His name was Hammy. And then they had uh, GP the the guinea pig. And uh, <laughs> that's the, a great name. It is. It is. And uh, and and what they did was they like. It wasn't like they were just hanging out in the riverbank. Like one of them lived in a mill. Uh, Hammy, uh, if, if you go to the um, Wikipedia page that we'll link to, Hammy was a uh, a pilot. So he had this little like World War II um, like uh, Red Baron style uh, uh, you know plane. And um, uh, GP, they, there was a diving bell, and I love this show. It was the greatest ever. Tales of the Riverbank, Hammy well, Hamster. Yeah, and it looks like it looks like it might be on YouTube. So um, yeah, check it out. Uh, Tales of the Riverbank. This looks this looks awesome. It, it's quite good. It's no Skippy, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, uh, and and just to be to be clear, uh, the official uh, the official name of the show was Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, um, and we will also link to the Wikipedia page for this. Um, uh, yeah, and apparently it is available uh, on DVD uh, at least in the UK. So. Well, get your get your DVDs out. Get them out, um, Don. I'm, you're. I think you're on campus today. You're in your your office, not in your home office. I'm in my in, in my private office on on campus. Yes. Do you have an executive uh, restroom in your <laughs> private office? I, I have a bottle that I use sometimes. <laughs> Does that count? It does it's not a senior executive bottle? It's just a just a lower junior executive. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, executive offices, so my. My son, um, who, uh, you know, I've mentioned that I have a, a couple of children. Uh, one of them, uh, Sam, is on spring break this week. And so twice this week he's come to work with me uh, as uh, this this is like his he's been wanting to do this forever. And we don't have the uh, take your kids to work day kind of thing. 
that that used to exist. I don't even know if that's still a thing. But um, Jack has been in my office uh, a couple of times in the last month or so because of weather has led to either late starts or early releases. So he's just come to hang out with me. And so Sam got very excited about about doing this. And the reason why I'm telling you this is the fallout of Sam being in my office for uh, half a day on Monday is that it looks like a frat party in here um, because I gave him some goldfish, uh, not not the uh, type of goldfish that that frat uh, frat boys might swallow, but the actual crackers, uh, flavor blasted extra cheddar goldfish, and I think he may have had a dance party and just like dumped a bunch of cheesy goldfish all over the floor on my carpet because as I moved my table to get ready for podcasting, I it revealed this like this death, you know, a death scene of, uh, of goldfish. And I'm, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that, uh, if anybody comes into my office, I'm just going to have to keep explaining it. Well, maybe, maybe if you would wear a tie, it would, uh, elevate the level of professionalism in your office. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, it would. Uh, he wore a tie. So <laughs> exactly it, why I mentioned yeah. it. So it, it did elevate the professionalist for, uh, about half a day. Uh, to, <laughs> well, and, if we add it up, it was half a day on Monday and half a day on Tuesday. That's a full day. There's a full day of tie wearing that's happened in my office this week. I, I think I think that that probably could that probably could uh, I could carry you a little bit of a ways with the goldfish on the floor. But uh, you know, I mean, because because the, the that you know the the, the I think they kind of balance each other. I think you might be right. Uh, it's you know, uh, as as they say in the world of mullets, like uh, business in the front, party in the back, and. <laughs> And I think I have. I think it's uh, business, business in the tie uh, party on the floor <laughs> in, my, in my office right now. Oh, um, hey, so you made some tea. Uh, I know this because you you texted me about it, and well, I, I didn't w- make some tea. Well, I guess well, technically, I I guess technically I did make. That's all. You sh- you sent me a picture of the goldfish. There's not that many. I was expecting zoom in, Z- zoom in. I think you're oh. you're not. Uh, you got to blow that up. It is. Uh, <laughs> It is quite. It's uh, it, there's a lot. It's it, okay. it is noticeable. <laughs> well, it's noticeable, but not from a distance. I mean, come on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, oh, there so, there are a lot of little tiny. Yeah. So anyway, so cough. So tea. Um. So I. I I bought I guess I bought hot water and a tea bag and I I physically put the tea bag in the hot water so technically I did make the tea but uh, yeah I, I bought uh, I bought some hot water and I bought some tea from Harvest Cafe uh, right next door uh, because I felt like I wanted something liquid and maybe a tiny bit more caffeine so yeah well I uh, you you said okay tea, it's tea time um, as they say in in the UK. And I said, okay, it's coffee time for me. And I went to make coffee. And we've talked about my coffee setup. Um, I have a AeroPress and a Burr grinder. And and right now, um, two half-finished bags of, of coffee beans. One that was uh, brought to me. I will uh, – you can hear it here. It was brought to me from uh, Costa Rica by uh, my colleague and friend of yours, I think on Facebook and on uh, Twitter, Sarah Kirby. She she went to Costa Rica and brought me back uh, some Terrazzo uh, Montecillo. Uh, and it was it's very nice. I think she got it in the airport, and I'm very appreciative of it. And then I also have this counterculture – coffee, which is a local um, group from Durham, North Carolina. Uh, so I went and loaded up my beans uh, and tried to move my bird grinder and it is broken. This is the second one that I've broken. 
Um, so then I had to go scramble for uh, some K cups. Wow. So um, so tell me how what's what's so I'm very interested now. Um, uh, uh, Bergrinder uh, safety talk. How how is your uh, well? How did your Bergrinder get broken? So let me let me go get it. Um, it is the bottom, like the actual. Bur- so if you were to open up your your grinder, um, the barrel that is the porcelain grinder has a housing that is like it appears to be pretty cheap plastic, and it is cracked from the, um, I guess the bolt that holds it in there all the way to um, the edge of the housing, and so what what should happen is as I turn the handle that. Um, that fitting turns and that will roll the barrels. Well, this is the, I mean, the, the exact same thing has happened to me twice now. I think I may, I like a really fine grind because um, I'm a connoisseur of grinds. And um, and I think I, I if, a, if a bean gets stuck and I start to jam it, I think it probably cracks this, this plastic. So, so anyway, I can turn it um, as, and you'll hear this, and this is not on my soundboard, um, but I am currently turning my hex and it is turning and turning, but the, the barrel that has the grinder in the middle is not rolling at all. So I have a bunch of beans and this has happened like the exact same thing. Now it's happened uh, twice. And I think it may be, I think I'm getting a, a too cheap of a grinder. I'm, this one is the eco grinder. Yeah. Which let is, me, yeah. So yeah. let me, let me recommend the, uh, the Porlex mini stainless steel coffee grinder. It is uh, $59, uh, Amazon prime. Um, highly recommend it. I have, uh, two of these. Um, the only thing, uh, and this has the ceramic burrs, um, which, uh, if you drop them, they will break, uh, but you can order replacement, uh, burrs for, for this. And I, I now I use a, I only have a burr grinder at home and it's a fancy, um, uh, fancy electric one. Uh, but I really recommend the, the Porlex, uh, mini stainless steel, uh, coffee grinder. So, and, and people do like it on Amazon as well. So 321 customer reviews, four and a half stars, um, uh, 59 bucks. So highly recommended. Well, if you look at, um, uh, other people have looked at things here. Uh-huh. I think the one that I have is, uh, is exactly the same as the Java press manual coffee grinder with the conical burr mill brush stainless steel. That was only $23. So I've now purchased two of these at $23. Um, and, and they don't work good. Well, or, so well, it works for a while and then yeah, it breaks. Then it breaks. So, uh, I, I, I again, uh, so let's, uh, let's get you hooked up with the, the Porlex uh, mini stainless steel coffee grinder. And I think you'll be off to the races. I have added it to my cart. Uh, and I will, uh, I will report back. Good, um, good, good. It, it is, it's, it, it's really, it's really quite, it's really quite cool. I, I think, uh, I think I talked, uh, I think, I don't know if I talked, uh, uh, Dr. Linda Harris, Linda J. Harris into this, or she talked me into it. I think I talked her into it, but, uh, um, I think I originally saw it recommended by, uh, the comic book, uh, uh, writer Warren Ellis, uh, as part of his traveling, uh, coffee kit. So yeah, highly excellent. recommended. Um, added and maybe, uh, maybe someone will, uh, uh, purchase this for my birthday, uh, which is coming up in, uh, in three weeks. Um, and, uh, and that person is the person we, we share a, um, uh, an Amazon account, uh, this, this person, my wife, Danielle, <laughs> uh, for Amazon prime. So I just added it into our account and maybe she'll order something and this will just show up because it's sitting in the, in the cart. Nice. Um, 
So I have two things before we get into food safety that I, that I want to talk about. One yeah. is I've had a terrible wake, week of things breaking, um, including my burr grinder from this mm -hmm. morning. Uh, things always break in, in fours, it seems, mm. um, and not, not just threes. And uh, so let's, let's start there. Um, so uh, Monday this week, and you, you saw this picture because you put it into the, uh, into the file, um, I, I was, uh, I received a couple of texts from Danny and then a phone call saying our neighbor had discovered that there was a water leak on our, uh, in our front yard. And, uh, they discovered it because they were doing some work on their irrigation. Uh, they were putting in an irrigation system and they were, um, tying into the, the, um, water line that comes from our water authority and uh, noticed that there was a bunch of pooling coming from our water line. And so uh, Danny called the water authority. They came out and they're like, yep, uh, it's a broken line and it's after the meter. So, so it's yours. Yeah. yeah. So good luck. Uh, call, call a plumber that can fix it. Uh, so we did that. And uh, the picture that I posted on Tuesday was of a plumber, our plumber who did a fantastic job. Um, uh, not, not a sponsor of the show, but I will mention white, white plumbing from Wake Forest, North Carolina. Um, and they brought out a uh, backhoe, uh, to do this work. So they dug up a fairly large, um, strip of our, our front yard, uh, to, to replace, uh, a, uh, broken water line and the water lines. So my, my house, um, um, we moved to this house in uh, June of last year. The house was built in 1981. And so this water line um, is, you know, almost, um, you know, 35 plus years old. And uh, according to the plumber, hey, uh, this is what happens uh, with uh, water lines over time and uh, technology has changed. So good news. We will not have to replace a water line again in our lifetime. Uh, because, uh, the, you know, the things that they, that they have now was just a PVC pipe, but now it's something called decks or pecs. Um, and, uh, unless someone actually cuts it on purpose, it'll, it'll be there uh, for a while. So that was not, not something we were super, uh, excited about because you don't, um, as a, as a homeowner, you don't always plan for things like that. You know, I, we didn't have a, um, $2,000, uh, um, cushion of, well, just in case the water line breaks. Yeah. We, so we had a similar experience, uh, not with the water line, but on the other end on the sewer line. Um, and, and we had to, again, got, they got plumbers, got there, got a backhoe, uh, got it, got it all sorted out. Uh, unfortunate, but, but these things happen. And I think also we are probably at some point looking at a, a water line, uh, replacement for us as well, not because the line has broken, uh, but just because the line has uh, – we have a rather low water pressure, and I think it's not our fault. I think it's because the line coming into the house um, has been gradually you know, just getting corroded and, and it just gets blocked over time. Um, and we found this out because we had to change over our water meter, the, the, the Freehold Borough um, – uh, was was changing out all the old water meters to one that's uh, uh, basically could be read remotely. Like so in other words, uh, the water meter stays inside your house, but then they have a little transmitter uh, that's outside your house, so they can come and do a digital reading um, uh, without actually coming in your house. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it was a uh, the the company that did the. 
uh, water meter swap out took one look at it and said, yeah, we're not going to touch that. You need to get a new <laughs> a new thing that comes out of the wall, and then we'll attach our water meter to that. Um, and so we had to have a plumber in to, to do that. Um, and when they did that, it, the the guy said, "Yeah, it's, it looks like you know the the line is 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 filling in, it's corroding or or whatever, and it's 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 not going to last forever." So, yeah, so we're looking at doing that at some point. In the meantime, we're just sort of putting up with uh, not having fantastic uh, water pressure. I think mainly the water pressure problem though is in the shower, and I think that may just because we have got scale in the um, uh, scale in the shower head. So we got to swap this shower head out and see if that fixes the problem. So anyway, yeah. Uh, and this is this is nominally food safety related because uh, it's at least it's it's safety related because uh, you know plumbing is an important part of right. uh, maintaining the safety of uh, our food supply. So sorry, to, sorry to hear about that. I, I as soon as I saw that backhoe, I'm like, oh, I bet I know. It's either one of two problems. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's either coming in or going out. And you, and going out, we we already talked about going out because uh, you guys have a septic, or is that right? We do. Yeah, we have a septic. Yeah, we have a septic tank, which is a uh, problem. But yeah. Yeah, and and so we um, that septic tank was was one of the like uh, sticky situations coming closer to closing uh, time on on the house, and everything's worked out fine. It, it again an older technology and in the current way to test it, um, it failed, and and that current way is to like uh, from what I understand launch a whole bunch of water through your your line to see whether the septic tank will hold it. Um, and, and whether the, the septic bed where there are, um, you know, little, uh, outlets essentially from that, from that tank as, um, as water moves through it, whether it would hold and, and it, and it didn't, um, but you know, everything is, has been fine, but we're, you know, uh, prepared at some point that it will fail and, and something will happen or not. And I, you know, I had to talk to, um, uh, a, a colleague uh, here who's been on a septic tank in the middle of the city um, for 30 years in the same house. And she said, yeah, same thing has happened to us when we tried to test it. And, and you know, it's no, um, yeah, it, it has, it hasn't failed. So, um, so that was item number one that broke uh, item number two that broke. So uh, the aforementioned neighbor who is doing some uh, putting in an irrigation system and doing some landscaping, Right after our water was um, fixed, and and we went from having no water for uh, you know a, a, about eighteen hours to to being able to shower and flush our toilets, um, uh, they uh, they uh, inadvertently uh, cut our uh, fiber internet. Um, so yeah, so what? Um, uh, I'll, let me just go back through the the progression. Um, Monday we had water and internet. Monday afternoon we had no water and internet. Um, Tuesday afternoon, we had water and internet, uh, Tuesday, about two hours later, we had water and no internet. And then yesterday morning, our internet was, uh, was repaired and, and the stress of having all of those things was not, was not cool. Um, and then, and then Don, this just to add to my excitement, I, um, have also cracked the face on my Apple watch. Um, and I don't. Yeah, and I don't know how. I don't know whether it dropped or whether I banged it into something. I don't remember doing it. I just remember looking at the face, and it's in the bottom right-hand corner. Fortunately, it's still it's all working still, uh, but there's you know a little shard of glass uh, fell out, and um, so now so I've got a I've got a broken I've broken one of those um, as well, and uh, to go with my bird grinder. So everything's breaking this week. 
Yeah, you know, I have, well, obviously I shattered one Apple Watch uh, when the dog decided to chase a cat, which we've talked about before, um, and that was the least of my worries. Um, and in fact, that was covered under uh, Apple Care, so that was good. Um, and then uh, I, another one, I, uh, I was helping Kristen do some uh, SPCA uh, transports, and I was walking into the mall, the back, the back door of the mall, uh, with a crate uh, with puppies in it, and I just smashed it on the, or scraped it on the, on the door, and there there was just a nasty scrape on it. But I've upgraded my watch since then, so it it, ha- it happens. It um, happens. It happens. You know, get Apple Care or don't, uh, and then either get a new watch or don't, and it'll it'll all be fine. So, yeah, yeah I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right. Um, but can I, I want to talk about, so the second thing I want to talk about was like fun things. Okay. Um, so, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about this in a couple of, uh, previous podcasts and you and I chatted about it when I saw, I've seen you like in person a couple of times in the last uh, month. And, uh, last weekend I ran, uh, with, uh, my, my friends, uh, this 200 mile relay race and it was amazing. It was really, really fun. Um, we, I, I, you know, personally ran at a faster pace than I had, um, anticipated. And in fact, running, um, miles, um, quicker than I did in any of my practice, uh, training runs. Um, it was the, the weather was very pleasant. There was no rain. It was cool overnight made for, uh, a, you know, a good, a good run, but, Don, the experience was I, I haven't been able to like write about it or post anything. It was I don't want to like overstep things and because you know I don't want to be trite. It was like this life changing reflective thing. It was it was a very cool team to be part of. Um, um immediately after finishing this race on Saturday afternoon, we ran for um I think it was about around thirty three hours, um leaving at five a.m. on um, Friday morning from just outside of Columbia, South Carolina and arriving. Um, and let me tell you exactly where we were. I think it was, um, I'm looking at the results, uh, that we can link to, um, do, 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 nine, uh, whatever it was. We ran at a nine forty two pace. Um, and, um, got to, uh, the middle of, or got to Charleston, South Carolina, 33 hours later. Um, and this is just, the Palmetto relay, right? This is the Palmetto relay. Cool. Um, I put in, uh, I don't know. I thought we were, I, I thought my name was on, or our name was on here somewhere. Maybe I was looking at the wrong years. What's the, what's the name of your team? It is Eagles Soar. I can't find. Oh, Eagles soaring. Uh, yeah, Brian Dare. Oh, there it is. Okay, one fifty six. But yeah, so there, there it is. Um, so we we uh, ran at a nine forty seven per mile pace, thirty three uh, hours and fifty minutes and fifty one seconds. Um, in our age uh, uh, or our grouping, which was the two hundred mile full team mixed non masters, we. Uh, Finished uh, 21 out of 24 teams. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and but it was it, like it was seriously one of the most fun uh, experiences I'd ever had. Um, many uh, really great memories of of, of the weekend. Uh, I did not sleep uh, except for one hour. 
um, at uh, about 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. on Saturday morning and um, continued to run. But it was it, it was great. I will. It, we we. Uh, are, are already investigating wh- which one we'll, we'll do next. But now what your your plan was not to not sleep. It's just that you were just so jazzed you couldn't sleep or uncomfortable, yeah. so you couldn't sleep? Yeah, and, and I, I was prepared to, like, um, sleep outside on a cot or, um, you know, b- put down a, a blanket with a sleeping bag and – um, I just, we, I just didn't, I, I ran my overnight leg from 3am to 3:45am, And by the time I got finished, um, and we moved to the next, uh, uh, exchange point, I decided, well, I'm going to drink a beer. And I did that. And, uh, and, and then we had a couple more, um, exchange points before dawn. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to keep, keep going here. Um, and, and so we, we had two, two vans, my van, uh, no one in my van uh, slept. In the other van, they took a three-hour break and went and slept in church pews at one of the churches that was open for the for the runners. Um, it was the I, I didn't really get the sense of what the magnitude of the event was before, but um, we we essentially went from church parking lot to church parking lot because there were in each of these exchange points somewhere in between 100 and 250 teams uh, that that had to park a 14 person van or two of them and then pick somebody up and then go to the next one. So the logistics were just, um, fascinating. And these, these churches would, um, there were volunteers there and they would serve coffee or bananas and, and just, you know, help people get, get through the, um, through the race. And yeah, it was, it was very, very cool. And at the end there's this big party with a, a bunch of beer and tacos and, um, the last, little bit was, uh, everybody, um, the teams crossed the finish line together. So I didn't, I didn't run the last leg. I ran the second last leg. We drove to the finish line and then the last, I don't know, 200 meters or so we all ran, our whole team ran together and crossed the line. It was really cool. Very cool. And, and yeah, and we've talked a little bit on previous episodes about the logistics of what your team was doing. But, yeah, when you put that in the context of, um, you know, 200 uh, or almost 200, 180 uh, uh, teams, now the logistics of managing all of that. Um, yeah, it's uh, and, and then, yeah, how do you navigate? How do you deal with these 14 people person vans, you know, hundreds of 14 person vans or, yeah, more than more, more than hundreds. Right. Because you had uh, different different, right. you know, two two vans and oh, mash, man. It's uh, just, yeah, just uh, logistical uh, 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 complexity. It was. And I, it was one of the things that you and I, we, we have similar, um, similar roles as, uh, as academics where we, um, you know, we build, we build a program and then we manage uh, that program from a funds and, and logistics uh, stand, you know, standpoint. And then we have um, students who we mentor and, and um, staff who, who we, um, who we supervise. And, and so much of what I do in my daily routine is, is managing logistics. And, and this, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I was really just along for the ride and was, I was so happy about that. So someone else, um, took care and I, and not to like shirk responsibility Two people that this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to manage the logistics, took care of all the, like figuring out where the vans were going to be and how we were going to do it. And then gave us each individually lists of things to bring. And I, my, my role was we had a, a three hour, 
uh, time frame where we went to a state park, which is one, where one of the exchange points were, and we cooked a bunch of food. I brought a grill and, and a food thermometer to make sure that none of my teammates got sick. Um, and, and so that was my, my role, but I didn't have to organize any of it. I just, you know, I just had to show up, um, bring some food and and cook it. The really trying to corral, um, a a team of 12 and then figure out how this is all going to work. Um, I'm, you know, I'm very happy that I didn't do that. And it was very, it was a, a kind of a nice relaxing situation to be just along for the ride and then do my part. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so uh, on that, to get into some food safety talk, um, we we did uh, uh, have some food safety questions come up along the run. I was <laughs> cooking in a uh, very temporary setting with a grill and two utensils and no running water. Um, and so managing cross-contamination on my grill was uh, uh, a combination of running uh, one time to a restroom to wash my utensils and then uh, keeping things like I only used tongs to pull clean things off the grill and I used a, a, a lifter to uh, flip things, uh, including stuff that doesn't lift really well. <laughs> um, and then uh, tempt everything up. We I cooked um, hot dogs, which are you know not super, super tough to do, but then also some chicken skewers and, and some steak. And we had a lot of, um, a lot of protein. And so, uh, and on a grill that, that is, uh, you know, slower and not, not quite the same kind of heat distribution as the one that I'm, uh, comfortable with using at home. So there was a lot of, a lot of food safety, uh, management and food safety talk. <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Um, yeah, and I think we probably talked in the past about my trip uh, with the Boy Scouts uh, to Philmont, uh, New Mexico, similar logistical challenges and food safety challenges on the trail, although fortunately um, the, the food safety challenges are probably more so on a regular camp out versus uh, backpacking just because everything's uh, dehydrated and uh, you know, you're know you more worried about just uh, making sure that it's palatable rather than, than it's safe. So, yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, so – Let's move into real real food safety now. Yeah, so we have uh, we have a lot of feedback. So, and I know that you are on a hard out today. So, um, should we should we try to get through some of that feedback Let's do first? It. Let's do feedback. All right. So, first uh, item uh, is uh, not raw cookie dough, um, and so. Uh, 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 let's see. So this is from, oh, uh, feel free to read my name uh, and my email. So this is from Kenna Huff. Uh, Kenna says, um, I just spent the week at the national, uh, the natural food products expo and saw at least 13 different companies showing quote, safe to eat cookie dough, close quote. Um, I know that you can do some heat treatment on commercial scale. What's the process like? Is this scalable to do at any level on a home kitchen? How would you verify that it worked, et cetera, et cetera? Um, my answer is um, that we well we had already talked about it in an episode that released uh, the last episode that released. But um, uh, from my perspective, I know that uh, Conagra had a safe flour product that they had promoted a few weeks ago or f- a few a few years back at IAFP. Um, I know that there are other companies that are working on uh, grain treatment technologies, but they don't have anything to say publicly. Um, I don't know what the heat treatment process would look like for cookie dough, um, but if you make dough and you apply heat, 
um, while still retaining that dough. I mean, again, and it might be a low time, low temperature, long time process. Um, that might work because obviously as you raise the water activity, uh, which you do by turning uh, dry flour into dough, um, that will help. Um, but could you scale this to a home kitchen? I don't know. Um, how would you verify? Uh, well, you'd need to do some challenge studies. Um, and yeah, and, and again, we talked before about this quote-unquote recipe for making things safe uh, by spreading a thin layer of flour <clears throat> and putting it in your oven on a baking sheet, um, uh, number one, that probably won't work, and number two, uh, you're not going to measure the temperature very well with a digital thermometer. So do, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Like, do you, What do you think? Do you think this is nonsense, that, that are, people are claiming um, that they're making safety cookie dough? What, what, do, you think, uh, what do you think is the, is the science, uh, if any, behind that? I think that they're making safety cookie dough by um, using pasteurized egg products. Oh, like, and they're calling it safe because the eggs are pasteurized. They're not managing the yeah. flour risk. That makes perfect sense. Yep. That's that's my guess. Like, and, and unless they're unless they're like as you you said that there's someone out there who is going through the steps on um, validating their process of of some dry heat. Um, and we had talked a little bit about this in a in a previous podcast about the safe to eat. Um, cookie dough at home on, um, you know, toasting your flour at 350 uh, for five minutes, and and I don't, I mean, I don't know. Um, so my my guess is the that flour risk gets confounded with the the eggs, and it's like, oh yeah, well of course we use you, this doesn't have any raw eggs in it, so it's good to go. Yep. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, you know, I I forget. And maybe it, there's yeah. something out there. I, I yeah. I yeah for, maybe I for, there's something out there. Go ahead. No, no problem. We, you were uh, robotic-y for a second, but I think you're better. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe there's something out there that um, that someone is tr- you know doing some heat treatment, whether whether it's reducing um, the sugar toxin producing E. coli by X log versus the salmonella that might be in there by less than than that X log. I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's I yeah, I think you're right, though, that the idea is that people are saying it's safe uh, because, you know, we thought we used to think that the risk and it's probably true that there is a risk from from using raw eggs. Um, but we now know that there's a risk from flour as well. So, uh, yeah. And the, the top hit on safety cookie dough is a recipe is a is a recipe from familyfreshmeals.com, which says uh, edible cookie dough for two. Um, and uh, step number six is uh, eliminate Eliminate any bacteria risks by toasting your flour at 350 degrees F for just five minutes. We kill off any harmful bacteria, which I think is uh, nonsense. So, right. Yeah. I just sent you a, a link to uh, maybe one of these um, companies um, that, uh, yeah, that, that was you know, talked about. Um, and uh, so this is a, a group called the Cookie Dough Cafe. And in their info and facts, uh, it, they say – uh, you know, they have a question of, is your cookie dough safe to consume raw? And they say, yes, all ingredients, including the flour and our delicious homemade recipes are safe to consume unbaked. The next question is, are there raw eggs in your product? And the answer is no. All the flavors um, of cookie dough cafes, gourmet, gourmet edible cooking dough are egg free. Um, so, OK, I, I'm interested in in the parentheses on including the flour and how they, um, you know, how they decide that it's, quote, safe to eat. 
And we talked before <clears throat> about uh, ConAgra, and we will link to uh, ConAgra has uh, what they call their safeguard ready-to-eat flour, and there is a web page about that. I don't know how uh, how popular it is or, or how well it's uh, selling, but the web page is still in existence, and so it's possible that people are using this uh, ConAgra flour, but I'm, <clears throat> I'm skeptical. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so our, our next... Uh, um, little bit of, uh, of feedback, um, comes from, uh, I'm not sure if we can, uh, share everything, uh, here, but it's an email that, that we received uh, a couple of weeks ago about that says, um, quote, what the heck? Apparently this is a trend. If you would listen to wait, wait, don't tell me, I think they referenced this recently. And the trend is, um, some, uh, pet chickens, um, in, in your house and, uh, ba- you know, day, day old baby chicks. And especially, uh, this weekend around Easter, this is a time where, um, I think CDC and lots of public health folks will put out, um, messages on, Hey, don't handle your, um, you know, any chicks that you're, um, that, that you might be bringing home. Or if you do, don't kiss them. Uh, and <laughs> don't, is know, that don't advice, is that advice for the president? <laughs> it is, it is, I think it is. I think it is. Um, and, uh, CDC got some, some really good tips. Um, we, we have, uh, uh, a neighbor who, uh, has, they don't have pet chickens in their house, but they do have, uh, backyard chicks and those backyard chickens, um, recently had been, um, uh, not purposefully depopulated by another animal. And so they are, they have just ordered new chicks, uh, and they are growing those up into large chickens that will produce, um, eggs for them. And we did have this like brief conversation, um, cause the neighbor kind of knows a little bit about what I do. And they, we had a conversation about, um, the, all of these things and risks. And they're like, yeah, we're, we don't want to give our kids, um, Campylobacter and, and Salmonella, and, and we're really careful about this stuff. So they 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 knew about it well before we had this conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, safe, you know, safe handling uh, tips for eggs from backyard poultry from CDC. Um, they may become contaminated with Salmonella through the laying process, um, and, and then through feed or bedding. And so um, I wanted to highlight something here. Um, this this idea in the in the message from CDC of refrigerate eggs after collection and this comes up quite a bit um, in in lots of discussions with with consumers or um, with media about refrigerating eggs that were um, collected from a from a backyard flock and um, I don't think I mean that this refrigeration is doing a whole heck of a lot. Uh, because they were sitting um, right at at room temperature uh, or at ambient temperature for quite some time, uh, well, for a, a few hours before they're they're harvested, and refrigeration is going to slow um, slow growth. But the biggest the biggest step is is just uh, cooking these eggs until they set. I think. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree. And I, honestly, I'm thinking uh, the biggest risk from backyard poultry is just the risk from the poultry themselves, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, but obviously, make your eggs safe, and one good way to do that is to is to is to cook them. So, yeah. So uh, we've got uh, unless you have more on that, 
Uh, nope. We have we have uh, more feedback from uh, Deep, Cr- Deep Crimson, um, uh, who who loved our conversation re- with uh, reading the letter from Tom the engineer about reverse suction. So thanks thanks Tom for that. Uh, it was more than just us who liked that. Uh, also, Deep Crimson's a fan. Um, and then she, t- she she in her message she talks about uh, that that scene from The Thing with Kurt Russell where uh, you perform CPR with a horrific result. Um, I uh, don't think I've seen that, and I probably don't uh, don't care to. But uh, but you uh, you apparently have seen that movie, and maybe you can talk about that in a minute. But um, uh, relevant to other discussions that we had back in episode one forty eight was about uh, recalls never being too late, and uh, there was some good discussion apparently on uh, Stack Exchange uh, cooking uh, about um, using romaine lettuce um, in um, mole, and and so obviously people may have uh, mole um, that's made with fresh greens that is uh, hanging around a long time. So uh, anyway, so so more evidence for the uh, never too late to do a recall um, uh, line of thought. I am. Yeah. Just to move back to the thing. I watched <laughs> this movie when I was a child at some point or or not. a, And it was um, my dad was really into like thriller kind of movies. And, and I don't like that's from 1982. And I must have been eight or 10 years old. And this thing like struck is terrible. Um, do not show this this kid or this movie to uh, to kids. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I've, I've since watched it again, but it's, it's scary. So I'm not going to talk about the CPR defibrillation, um, uh, scene. We are going to just link to it. It's three minutes long. You go ahead and watch it. Uh, <laughs> and I think it speaks for itself cause it is terrifying. Uh, <laughs> or at least it was to the eight or 10 year old me. Um, so great. Yeah. But thanks deep crimson for, uh, no, you know, not only uh, giving us great feedback, but also uh, reminding me of my uh, my childhood and to my response, which is a little bit sarcastic. Awesome. LOL. Love the thing, which I really should have said. Loved it because it terrified me scared, you know, uh, it, it, in, in, a, in a way that I've not quite uh, responded or uh, recovered to or uh, recovered from. Very good. Very good. Um, And then uh, we get well. We, so we were recently at the NeuroCore meeting, you and I. And while we were there uh, getting emails from a friend of the show, uh, NeuroNerd, um, who asks a question, um, uh, with all the talk of food, food waste recently, I'm curious, how do you guys personally manage the risk of getting packaged foods home that have a compromised package? It's happened to me in a few ways. Spices where the foil seal is broken, jelly or jarred foods where the lid is popped, plastic boxes of mixed greens where the seam is already open. Uh, she, she writes, I usually worry about food defense and tampering, and these products go in the trash. But I'm thinking how much I throw away, and that seems wasteful. Um, from my perspective, um, if I purchase a package and, and later learn that it's lost container integrity, I just return it for a refund. Um, I think it's probably a low-risk event. Um, I do think about the tampering issue, um, and in fact, we, which can probably at some point segue to uh, Wild Wild America, which was not really a tampering event but was a bioterrorism event. Um, but I don't know, Ben. Do you have how do you manage this particular thing uh, with uh, container integrity, uh, either while shopping or, uh, or or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, same same as you do. Uh, if I discover it, I, I 
and maybe not so much always as a food safety risk, but um, just for, for quality reasons. And that maybe someone has like opened it and taken something out of it. And I feel like I've been wronged. Um, but I do, but I do like to neuro nerds point, I do actually pay a lot of special attention to this. I, I don't, um, I, you know, when you're pretty, uh, uh, preparing food and you're opening something for the first time, um, I do try to make sure that that safety seal or full seal is, is on that product. So I don't have to, um, to think like to worry about it, but I, I don't sort of gloss over that, um, in my, in my cooking, um, or, or preparation, um, world, but there, you know, that it, it is product dependent because there are lots of, um, types of foods out there that, that are not fully sealed. And, and I worry about cross contamination in those, um, in types of types of products, uh, as well. But I, I would, um, I would definitely return it. I would definitely get back where I got it. Cool. So um, uh, next uh, next bit of feedback uh, is uh, a recommendation for or, or a discussion of the book uh, "Biting the Hands That Feed Us." Uh, smarter laws would make our food safe. Uh, how fewer smarter laws would make our food safety system more sustainable? So, so this is um, um, some feedback uh, that came um, from. Uh, well, who, who is it from now? I, sorry, I've lost, uh, I've lost the, it was from, I was from oh, Hannah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. We were, we were sitting, yeah, we were sitting around at, uh, at a lunch at the Noro, uh, the Noro court meeting in, uh, um, uh, Hannah, uh, one of your former students, um, and who's a, a, um, uh, a, a graduate student here at NC State. She was reading this book and asked us, "What you know? Had we read it and what we would have thought about it?" And she said she wasn't sure how to feel about things because there are some interesting um, points brought up around uh, sustainability and um, and waste, and as well as regulations impacting food businesses. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I added it to my list of, uh, books to read and I have, I'm on the wait list cause uh, Wake County, um, library has this, uh, has this book electronically. So I'm just waiting for it. Cool. Yeah. And I, yeah. And so thanks for refreshing my memory. And I would say, um, I, I wouldn't, I don't reject the premise that fewer smarter laws would make our system more sustainable and uh, of equivalent safety. How we get to that point and exactly what those laws are is is hard, right? And, and it's but it's probably a discussion. I mean, I think it's definitely a discussion worth having. Um, but but there's the, the and there's a lot of levels to it, right? So one level is. Um, ha- how do you practice? So let's say we could agree scientifically that law X uh, or changing law X would make the food supply more sustainable and not change safety. Is there political will to get there? Um, but I think a more interesting question is how do how would we do the analysis that would show what that law would look like, right? Because obviously we have laws for a reason. There are probably some laws that are good. There are probably some laws that are bad. How do we uh, use science to to, to navigate that. And certainly risk assessment is a big part of that. It's something that I think about a lot as I'm doing risk assessments or advising people on doing risk assessments. Um, 
Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's added, it does seem like a very uh, interesting uh, book, and certainly uh, I think we've mentioned before Emily uh, Lieb, uh, who wrote the foreword to this book. Uh, she has been been active in the food waste movement, and I've talked with her um, on on the on the, the subject. And so, yeah, it's it's good it's good that we're having these discussions. I don't think that there's easy answers, but but it's I think it's worth having the discussions. And thanks to Hannah for for sharing uh, this uh, this idea of, of this book with us. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, this gives us an intersection to talk a little bit about some of the conversations that happened at um, the NeuroCore final showcase um, and, and some of the stakeholder discussions. One of the things that um, that, that you and I have, have chatted about um, in previous uh, podcasts and, and has come up at that meeting in the past as well is the the concept of registering um, compounds for sanitizer use and um, and also using EPA established um, evaluation techniques for labeling. And so to to get all a little nerdy on this, um, EPA um, and and I don't I actually don't know a lot of the history on this, but um, I think it has to probably has to do with um, the uh, pesticide uh, regulations, but but the um, it, for a compound that's being used, um, the EPA has decided that using a surrogate, and I think it was uh, a um, using a Khaleesi virus uh, surrogate, was how they would make decisions on whether something was um, w- was effective for against norovirus. And now, as Norocore has. Um, has has moved the science forward, and um, the a um, culture method has been developed for human norovirus. The idea to go back to revisit uh, some of the science and some of the uh, what what is allowed to be said as um, uh, effective against norovirus, um, and you know being able to move that forward. Um, EPA doesn't seem, and this is my like total take, doesn't seem to be interested in that. Um, and, and in fact, that the the people at EPA aren't receptive to the to the new science that that's been um, uh, presented as as part of the Norcor uh, project, and that coupled with this idea that we um, need clinical trials for uh, hand sanitizer use because of the way it's regulated by FDA Cedar, um, it seems like you know as much as um, I, there, this this turns into a, a political safety talk, but as much as our you know the current U.S. Uh, administration focuses on deregulation, this might be the time to have that conversation of um, making the clinical trial stuff easier to to go through. At the same time, being able to push forward new and better science on EPA. Um, uh, evaluation because it is holding back business to uh, development really. And so that was, you know, this conversation that we talked about biting the hands that feeds us or biting the hands that feed us um, that has to do with food policy. um, And this is adjacent policy that, that exists that, that may, maybe there is uh, someone in the administration that would be more receptive to having the, conversation now than in in previous um, administrations uh, for all the things that that they do that I don't agree with. 
Yeah, I, I, I would I would definitely agree. And and that actually makes a nice segue into something that I did not have flagged as listener feedback, but it very much was. And we will link to this. This is an, an awesome post at uh, Fur Farm and Fork uh, by friend of the podcast, uh, Austin Book. Uh, the title of the post is Keeping Hands Clean, uh, Keeping Clean Hands Clean paper towels or hand dryers, a role-playing adventure. And so this was, this was delightful, um, having been a Dungeons & Dragons uh, uh, role player back in the day and, and obviously caring a lot about hand-washing. Um, I won't spoil it for you guys, but, but basically it's, it's just a delightful uh, little article about talking about food safety and, again, made me think of the fact that I would um, – I've often thought about being the dungeon master for uh, a role-playing game where, where Dan, <laughs> Benjamin, and Merlin Mann try to leave a public restroom, um, you know, with, uh, with calculations and dice and, and all kinds of stuff like that. It just, uh, it just, this just warms my heart. And so thanks to Austin for writing this and, and for, and for sending the link our way. It's just, uh, it's just absolutely uh, fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to that episode of a podcast to be, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that has not been recorded yet. Uh, cause I, I, I would also love that. And I think if we, maybe if we had, uh, John Roderick, uh, be a color commentator, uh, for that, <laughs> yes. It would be, uh, we should make this happen. Um, next piece of feedback um, comes from um, friend, friend of, of the podcast, friend in, in real life, um, and uh, colleague at the University of Illinois. Um, and this is uh, from, and, and I'm not good at pronunciations, but it's from uh, Matthew uh, Stieswitz. Um, and Matt, Matt, uh, writes us and says, I came across a 2015 NPR article on reducing food waste with the suggestion to use sour milk for pancakes, not buttermilk, specifically pasteurized milk that has started to spoil in the fridge. As I made these pancakes, I started wondering about listeria undercooked pancakes. And if I should pull up my digital thermometer, I know there's bigger listeria problems in the world right now, but I thought this might be interesting for the show. Absolutely. Great. Um, you know, great to bring this to our, uh, to our radar here. I have not, um, not, you know, seen this. I've, I've definitely consumed my share of buttermilk pancakes, you know, the buttermilk, um, uh, that is, uh, consistently made commercially that, uh, has a really, really nice flavor. But after Matt sent this, I started, um, Googling or a, a little bit about, um, about this and there, it's not just NPR, um, there are lots of sustainability food waste uh, blogs that that talk about this, and I think your your answer was was great, um, which is my initial reaction is the likelihood of just having really and I will uh, you know let's without, say crappy pancakes yeah without having the explicit tag uh, yeah you know, crappy pancakes uh, is a much greater risk than any of the listeriosis but I've added this for discussion in the next episode um, I, I I want so what people write about is they say things like well of course sour milk tastes terrible but somehow this cooking process um, gets rid of the quote sour tasting flavor um, which I don't I don't know the the food science uh, sensory as- attributes um, of it um, I think it's a really you know a really low risk and uh, a process and especially with a, a very thin batter um, type you know, type item and, uh, being, you know, you flip it. So you should have some fairly even heat distribution for both sides of that, of that pancake. But I, I have, um, you know, I'm, we, I make pancakes for my kids a lot and it is not atypical for me to have a still 
moist battered pancake um, after I've flipped it. But I would think that Listeria is not going to compete super well in that um, in that spoiled milk uh, situation. I, you may still have some uh, not so nice spoilage microorganism flavor, but I, I don't think that um, the Listeria is a real uh, a, a real risk in this area. Right, right, and I think people need to realize that spoiled milk is not not all spoiled milk is the same. Obviously, if you have spoiled milk um, and you spoil it in a very specific way using lactic acid bacteria, you can make yogurt, which is which is delightful, and people love to eat that. Um, on the other hand, uh, another organism that's very common in uh, pasteurized milk is Pseudomonas, and Pseudomonas does not cause souring necessarily. It, it causes spoilage, and it's disgusting. Right. right. So, so realize that uh, milk is different, and the the the, the starting in, uh, population of microorganisms in that milk, the temperature exposure that milk has received, the, the temperature exposure it continues to receive in your fridge, all of that comes into play. And the bottom line is like I. I mean, I get the idea that you. I get the idea of saving, um, uh, saving on food here. But personally, I find one of the most revolting things to me personally is spoiled milk. Of all of all the foods that are out there, uh, spoiled milk is. I am very sensitive to that taste, and it's disgusting, right? And so <laughs> you don't want that in your pancakes. I don't want that in my pancakes. Exactly. I would much rather not have pancakes or or just go to the store and buy some buttermilk. I think uh, we we don't eat a lot of pancakes, but but. It is a common uh, thing that Kristen likes to make uh, for on the weekends when we have more time and we can have a nice leisurely breakfast. And um, we have occasionally we we keep uh, we keep uh, um, buttermilk in our fridge on a regular basis for just that purpose. And um, the good news about buttermilk is that as it ages in the fridge, it it only gets more sour, and so it's probably you know it, it lasts a pretty long time. Um, but she's also tried recipes that called for buttermilk, where instead she used uh, regular milk and then added. Added um, uh, acetic acid to, to lower the pH, and that's that's not a good, even that um, which is not spoiled is not a good substitute. So I would say, like if you don't have buttermilk, um, you know, first of all, just drink your milk up so it doesn't spoil, yeah. and then if you want to make buttermilk pancakes, use buttermilk. I mean, it's you know, anyway. Agree. Yeah. So I just sent you a link to yep. Tree Hugger where I found some some other stuff on this, and they give some other non food. Um, uh, tips and I'm I don't know about the efficacy of this one, but one that caught my eye here was in gardening: dilute sour milk with water and pour into garden beds to increase calcium content. Um, it's supposed to be particularly good for tomato plants. I, well, let me check with my uh, horticulture friend Chris <laughs> Gunter on this. I don't know if that's true, uh, but but they also have the skincare. Uh, the lactic acid facial, uh, so rubbing sour milk or sour cream or yogurt on your skin will make it smoother, firmer, and lighter. So uh, uh, think about that. I also think it may make it stinkier. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I would say if you have uh, spoiled milk, you could certainly compost it. You do have to be a little bit careful about putting a lot of uh, fat in in your compost. I I thought about this the other day because I dumped out some. Um, uh, coconut, uh, spicy tomato coconut soup that had just sat, sat around in our fridge too long, and I knew it had coconut milk in it, um, uh, and I put that into the compost. So I will report back if I think about it uh, to see what that has done in our compost pile. But you can put a lot of—I mean, we mostly compost vegetable stuff, and I'm just—I'm constantly amazed at how much I can throw in there, and it never seems to get more than 50% full. So obviously, whatever is going on in that composting pile, uh, it's doing a good job. Excellent, excellent. Well, throw your spoiled milk uh, and uh, dilute it first with some water. 
maybe and or, then maybe grow or, some tomatoes. Or, 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 or yeah, I, I, I again, I, composting's fine. I would, I would hesitate to put something. I guess I suppose if it's on, if it's a low concentration, I, I don't know. I, uh, that's, that seems a little, that seems a little suspect to me. But yeah, I, right, right. Um. So uh, deep, deep New England uh, sends us uh, some excellent uh, uh, leader or leader uh, listener. Now I'm trying to say reader feedback, but it's listener feedback. But it's because it's about a book. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the book is is called uh, "The Graves Fine uh, a Fine and Private Place," and it is a um, Flavia De Luce. Um, uh, novel uh, by Alan uh, Bradley. And uh, uh, Deep New England says, hi, uh, this detective mystery series starring a precocious motherless 11-year-old Flavia De Luce, uh, who is fascinated with chemistry and death. She sleuths and bicycles around the countryside from her home, the ancient country house, Buckshaw 1950s England, which sounds like, Don, this is in your wheelhouse. If there was a BBC or Channel 4 show on this, I, you would know about it. It would be on Acorn. Um <laughs> I've read all yes. of, the, of the books of the series and imagined my delight when I came across a passage on the joys of pasteurized milk and its uh, prevention of milk-related TB. So um, check out from from Deep New England, The Graves of Fine uh, and Private Place. And I, I've not – I don't know about these books, but this is sounds like the type of detective mystery that my children would love if I read to them. So um, I have uh, added this to my list of, uh, of books to check out and, and read to my kids. Yeah, very good. And and the 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 section that she sent uh which was excerpting from the book is 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 quite good. So, um let me see if I can uh, if I can find that here. I, it was a little was a little weird to uh, how to save it. Um yeah, so uh let's see. Um the landlord gave me a squinty eye, but he wrote down my order. And you, sir, he asked, turning to Dodger. Milk, Dodger replied, a small glass of milk. It's pasteurized, I presume. Past your eyes, then past your ears, sir. The landlord <laughs> laughed, slapping his knee. I could have slapped his face. You've never seen so milk so pasteurized as our own. Why, just yesterday I was saying to Mr. Clem, our vicar, you'll get no trade from our kitchen, meaning, of course, the funeral department. He wasn't amused, <laughs> like Queen What's-Her-Name, anyway. <laughs> I, I stopped listening. I knew all too well the dangers of unpasteurized milk, and then it goes on. Anyway, so it's, uh, if, that, if that sounds uh, intriguing to you, uh, you might want to check out um, the uh, latest uh, Flavor de Luce mystery from, uh, from Deep New England. Excellent. Okay. Don, you're going to love this. And I've got – this is going to lead to some, some, some actual research. But uh, we, our next piece of – Oh, God, yes. Yes. Our next piece of research comes from um, Chris Stone of the Great Sentient Microbe uh, Twitter handle. Um, and this is from a New Yorker post that I read this twice to think, is this like an onion post? And it is uh, from the Annals of Gastronomy by Helen Rosner, March 23rd, 2008. And the headline is, yes, I use a hairdryer to make roast chicken. And here's the recipe. Um, and so some some highlights uh, here. Uh, it really is about um, – I will read the, the recipe. Uh, what you need and is called roast chicken a la Dyson. You need one small whole chicken some kosher salt, some roughly chopped vegetables, three to four cups, uh, some vegetable oil, some butter, and some black pepper. Step one, the day before you plan to cook the chicken, pat in, uh, pat it dry inside and out with paper towels. Take the giblets out, uh, season it generously, um, and set uh, 
set the chicken on a wire rack uh, over a large plate or rim baking sheet and place in the refrigerator uncovered for at least 24 hours and up to 48 hours. The skin will be translucent, dry, and firm to the touch. Two hours before you plan to serve the chicken, remove it from the refrigerator. And then here, here you go, Don. Using a handheld hand dryer on the cool setting, blow air all over the chicken, making sure any dry parts of the chicken uh, that are still damp, particularly underside, are um, inside the cavity. In a large mixing bowl, um, so use get your dryer out and dry everything off. In a large mixing bowl, use your hands to toss the root vegetables um, and rub the chicken with oil. Um, arrange the vegetables on 12 inch cast iron skillet stove top stove, safe three quart baking dish. Make sure to pour any oil, um, that's pulled up at the bottom of the bowl, place the chicken on top of the vegetables, breast side up, then, uh, place it on the place, the, uh, skillet with the chicken and vegetables on a rack in the center of a cold oven, set the temperature to 350 degrees, um, and then roast, um, and once the oven temperature is set to 450 degrees, then you turn it up uh, to 450 degrees, you're, incre you're increasing the temperature, um, and uh, then cook it until it reads 155 degrees, your instant read um, thermometer. <sighs> but why are people using a hair dryer to dry out your chicken, and why does this matter? <laughs> well, so I've, I've, I've got a couple of comments so so first of all um, we, we do we do have to uh, we do have to, to note that the author of the article uh, will read from I'll read from the article here it's by Helen Rossner um, uh, and it's just from uh, earlier uh, this March and so she in the middle of the article it says um, I took pictures of the process and posted it to Twitter where people were in roughly even groups thrilled or repulsed by the sight of a beauty appliance in the kitchen. There was, in particular, no shortage of men, parentheses, why is it always men, sneering at my incompetence. This is what your oven is for, a few said, apparently thinking that I was using the hot, the dryer, not to dry the chicken, but to cook it. And I have to confess... That is what I originally thought. And then I did read the article and I realized that, no, she's just drying it out. Um, and so, so first of all, so and, re and related to that, I have to say um, I love chicken with a crispy skin. And so I am all about finding a way to safely get a crispy skin on chicken because that sounds fantastic to me. Um, but then it goes on to say they lingered on my choice of hair dryer, the Dyson Supersonic, a futuristic looking device that is at $400 absurdly expensive. It's also inarguably better than any other bro blow dryer I've tried, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have to say I uh, have short hair and I wash it and dry it and I'm good to go. My wife spends an inordinate amount of time and I have learned that Having a good hair dryer is really, really important to her living a, a good life, right? Like we – like we – she – if she cannot get – like we, we travel sometimes in Europe, she will bring her own um, appropriate voltage hair dryer because the – but because she just simply cannot face having a poor quality hair dryer. So I get that – I mean I would never sneer at uh, someone's choice of hair dryer, okay? But what I think we have to focus on is what is the potential risk of cross-contamination, right? That's really what the food safety angle to this is. And obviously she's not cooking the, the chicken with the, the, the hair dryer. But if this is something that takes place, 
uh, and there are Campylobacter and Salmonella on the surface of that chicken, this could potentially blow them around the kitchen. And I think, and that's the, yeah. the open question. The open food safety question is what is the actual risk from this? I suspect the risk is smaller than washing your chicken in the sink, okay? Uh, but it is not zero. And the question is what is it? And I think the, 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 the quick answer is we don't know. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, I, I wasn't like, as I read it a couple times, I was like, oh yeah, okay. This is not just like a, a joke. It's yeah. yeah. Um, but cooking to 155, we're well below, uh, our safe endpoint temperature and maybe you can get the same time temperature, uh, you know, combination. Uh, I mean, you can get the same log reduction with uh, the time temperature combinations, but 155 seems a little low to me. Well, one 155, um, uh, you know, let's see. So uh, uh, reads 155 about 20 to 25 minutes. I, 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 I suspect that if you did the integrated lethality, that would come out okay um, just based on the starting temperature and assuming, you know, uh, linear uh, ramp up and, and cool down. Um, I think it's probably okay. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the, is, it, is it safety validated? I, I don't know. So, yeah, good questions. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what was I going? Oh yeah. So I want to go to, um, go to our next, uh, bit of uh, listener feedback, which, uh, um, comes from someone who says, don't, don't mention who it is. Um, and the question is, Hey, uh, I've been seeing questions and government advice, uh, re starting with frozen chicken or beef in a slow cooker. Um, have you already addressed, uh, this in your show? If so, uh, which one, or is there a way to actually easily search for topics you've covered? Um, and uh, the individual is interested in, in what we have have to say. So, right. um, I'll, uh, we'll address the first part of the the question, or the second part first. And um, so, on on foodsafetytalk.com, uh, if you are listening, you can go back and um, search through our archives, and there is a um, uh, search function on uh, searching our site. And, um, we, I, um, this one, so here's the, the thing, um, if there are, um, uh, things that we have talked about in, in the past, it, it only pops up if we've got notes to them or some links. Cause we don't, we don't have like, uh, a, a way in it to sort of grab the transcripts of our, um, of anything that we talked about, but we do try to make sure that if we are talking about something that we've got, um, you know, either a link, uh, or in the preamble that we write about the show, something a little bit about it. And so I did look for, um, slow cooker and crock pots and only once, um, have we, uh, have we talked about it? And it was back in episode, uh, one Oh four shorter stacks. Um, and I did not go back, um, to, uh, 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 uh the, you know, listen to this, to this episode, but I believe it had to do with something, um, uh, on, uh, cooking marinara in a slow cooker and that slow cooker, um, went, went out and was there any, what were the risks associated with it? Which is a different question from this one, which is cooking from frozen. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in your take on it, Don. And to me, I know that the government, the government or the health authority recommendations are pretty, um, comment on this. Like if you're using a slow cooker or a crock pot, don't, don't cook from frozen. I don't subscribe to the absolutes on this and I have cooked from frozen, but I've cooked very specific types of things in a slow cooker, 
um, from frozen. And often it's something like a um, already chopped up um, chicken breast. And the way that I handle it is I um, I temp it at some point within the first couple hours to see how much it is cooking. And I'm doing it in a way with a lot of liquid because my slow cooker is going to come up to temperature with a lot of liquid very quickly. We'll do this with um, often it's if I'm making something like an um, uh, filling for enchiladas or, or tacos or, or something. And I will um, cook these these frozen um, chicken um, you know, pre pre cut frozen chicken cutlets, um, and throw it in there with, uh, usually some, uh, Rotel or other canned salsa and cilantro. And I let it sit for a couple hours and then, uh, check the temperature. And in every time that I've done this, and we do this probably once every two or three weeks, every time that this, that I've, that I've done it, I, I'm getting that chicken within those first two hours, well above 160. It's usually in the 180 range. Um, and then I let it slow cook longer to the point where I can shred that, shred that chicken. Now, if I was to put a whole roast in, um, a much more dense piece of meat, I think I would have more, more concern, but with the way that I've, you know, that I'm managing it, I don't, I, I have not seen any, um, any issues. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one thing to solve the problem f- like you would solve it for a food processor and another way to solve it like you would solve it for a consumer. And so again, really it's all about the uh time temperature combination, it's about the integrated lethality. If you wanted to develop a validated recipe for a consumer, you would have to prescribe the size of the cut as you mentioned. You you only do it with small cuts with a lot of liquid. You would have to basically figure out what's the recipe. You would have to figure out what's the size of the cuts. Um, and then you would, I, I, if I was going to, if I was charged with doing this, I would get some thermocouples. I would put some thermocouples into a bunch of pieces of chicken. And then I would, I would run the recipe multiple times to basically figure out what the slowest, what the slowest heating piece of chicken would likely be, and then calculate an integrated lethality for that. Um, and then you're kind of, that locks you into a particular recipe that locks you into a particular, um, slow cooker it locks you into a particular setting on that slow cooker um and so you know it's 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 possible i i absolutely believe it's possible to do it safely i just don't it's just would be a lot of work to develop a safe validated recipe right or the other solution is just to give everybody um you know uh thermocouples and loggers and teach them how to calculate integrated lethality and then they can they can do that on their own um which is obviously that's that's silly not we're not going to do that but um but that's that's the solution right is is, right. is a, a validated uh, a validated recipe um or 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 validated each time right or or you could say well okay um yes cook from a frozen state but when you get home um temp it Temp multiple pieces of chicken and then keep it in the slow cooker until those t- those uh, pieces of chicken get to temperature X, right? Whatever you decide is the appropriate um, endpoint, you know, based on again uh, integrated lethality and, and thinking about um, you know thinking about those things. Right, right, and I and I think that's the, the that's the more practical approach here because we we have um, good recommendations on how to cook. Um, a large piece of meat uh, from frozen in an oven, um, like uh, roasting a turkey from fro- from frozen. It's that's a it's a common uh, commonplace um, situation, and 
you know, it's it, that that endpoint temperature over um, over time. It's not going to be a quick a, a quick roast in in that um, in that sense. I you know I think a slow cooker with the size of that um, of that pot and and high liquid, um, you know, being able to prescribe that checking the the temperature and making sure that it gets that endpoint and it's going to be. Um, with you know within x number of hours and 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 that could be like it really like and uh, get, without you running some mathematics on this but i i think i would feel fairly safe that if you reached uh, a safe endpoint temperature within six hours um in that in that slow cooker um you know, uh cooking cooking step that that would be pretty sufficient right like it's not like w- reach this endpoint temperature within 24 hours because i don't think that's how people are using cro- you know slow cooker crock pots right right and and just uh fyi uh relative to the 155 um so recently usda fsis um got rid of their old appendix a and uh, they have a new appendix a which is a much more lengthy document, which has advantages and disadvantages, but but eventually, um, uh, if you scroll down far enough in that document on page thirty four, you can find um, for one fifty five degrees Fahrenheit, you can find uh, time and temperature and fat level for chicken to get a seven log reduction of salmonella, and it goes from one percent fat all the way up to twelve percent fat. But the good news is, is that you reach that seven log reduction um, within uh, less than a minute. Okay, so so. 40 to 50, 40, 44 to 54 seconds. And so back to that um, uh, hot air dryer recipe, um, 155, probably if this is, if you're achieving that in an oven, yeah, you're going to, you're going to be at 155 um, at, at the fat, the, the thickest part of the breast. So everything's going to be, you know, more than that. Um, uh, if, as long as you're there for about a minute, you're fine. So, so, you know, 155 is probably okay, and uh, and yeah. So take a look at um, take a look at uh, USDA Appendix A if you want uh, if you want to get the the skinny on that. Awesome. Um, all right, we got we got another one here, um, and this is from someone who says you can read my message but not my name. Um, hi, Don and Ben. I work in quality assurance in the flavors industry, and I'm really glad to have stumbled on your show. I thoroughly enjoy listening to topics around uh, food safety um, as I edit HACCP plans and complete GMP audit reports. Um, yes, I'm very good at multitasking. I live in Australia, and listeria and rock melons is still a topic of conversation at work. Of course, you may be well aware, and we are. Um, recently stumbled upon a video on YouTube, uh, Bon Appetit. The cook on the clip was showing a flavor-enhancing technique on meats using koji, a moldy rice from Japan. What he did was grind up the koji and uh, coat it on raw shrimp, raw chicken, and raw beef and let it ferment a few days before cooking. What really surprised me is that most of his chicken – and he thought of leaving raw chicken unrefrigerated for a long period of time because of the salmonella risk before eating, even if you're cooking it afterwards, is not very wise. So I was wondering, one – do you think the chicken he cooked is safe to eat even though he left it at room temperature for a long period of time? And two, if there were pathogens, um, I, you know, e.g. salmonella on the chicken, would mold from koji affect the growth on meat? I'm a chemist by education, and my background is food microbiology is, uh, in food microbiology is very limited. I'm looking to remediate this topic in the future, however. Um, so I would appreciate your thoughts on this topic. So what – what do you what do you think? Did you have a chance to take a look at the YouTube video? I, I did not look at the YouTube video, but that never stops me from having an opinion. So so <laughs> first of all, let me let me answer you the way that I answered the listener, which is to say 
Um, with respect to the first question, it depends upon how much temperature abuse and how well you cook your chicken. So in other words, uh, if you give it a certain amount of abuse, you're going to raise the salmonella level by a certain amount, and then you've got to account for that in your cooking process. So again, back to the earlier point, um, 155 um, for a minute is going to give you a seven log reduction of salmonella. So even if you really abuse the heck out of it temperature-wise, um, you can you can overcome that with, with proper cooking. That's said, uh, leaving chicken out at room temperature is not a best practice, okay? Um, And then to the second point, uh, which is a much, I think, a much more interesting one from a scientific point of view, if there were pathogens on the chicken, would the mold from koji affect its growth on the meat? And the answer to that is we don't know. Now, I did a little bit of uh, Google Scholar search looking for uh, koji rice or antibacterial properties of koji, and Interestingly, the the primary uh, mold that seems to grow on uh, koji rice is uh, aspergillus. Ben, do do you do you know anything about aspergillus? Um, I think it's uh, it's not about antibiotic, right? Well, it, no. Well, you, I think you're thinking of penicillin. Um, oh, no, yeah, yeah, no as, yes. aspergillus. Uh, as when, when you say when you say aspergillus and food safety, what immediately immediately comes to my mind is aflatoxin, which is which is a very potent toxin that's right. formed yeah. by some species of aspergillus. Um, uh, obviously, uh, mold taxonomy is complicated, and not all like. Kind of like 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 uh, fungi and mushrooms as well. Um, uh, so there are obviously some species of aspergillus that are fine. There are other species of aspergillus that make toxin. Um, uh, the good ones uh, ferment rice, and the bad ones uh, can give you food poisoning. So, uh, but I but I could not find any literature where people had specifically looked at mold from koji as being antibacterial. But obviously. If you got penicillin um, on that on that rice um, uh, and not aspergillus, uh, uh, p- uh, penicillium uh, makes penicillin, and that could be antibacterial. So it, it turns out it's it, it's a, it's a it's a tough scientific question to um, uh, to find an answer to. But I mean, certainly, if somebody wanted to go out and study the antibacterial properties of rice koji, uh, they could certainly do it. It does it doesn't look like that's been a, a well explored uh, research area. Right, right, right. I, and as I watched that that the video, um, the thing that I thought about um, the most was you know the the chef talks about how there's a color change and so you can see the that the mold's working on the meat and I really just think that it's um, the pH of the rice has changed through that fermentation and all you're seeing is a color change because of the lactic or whatever the acid was maybe it's lactic acid or um, you, whatever acid is being produced in this. Um, through the fermentation, uh, and it's that's what you're seeing act on on the meat. Like you could probably do that without having the the ferment, the, like the actual mold involved. Yeah, and I'm, um, and I'm not sure in, in the process. Yeah, I'm not sure is is uh yeah we'd have to I'd have to do a little bit more research on 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 koji fermentation, but I don't think uh, all right so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Did you? Uh, yeah, aspergillus uh, oh, arisi is the is the the mold that is is grown on on koji. But I'm not sure that it it reduces the pH when it grows because molds. Uh, I don't think molds do that. So uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I guess. I'd, but would there? I, the, this is where we get into uh, fermentation safety talk. Mm-hmm. But would there not also be some competing, like some other things going on there? Like w- that would also be fermenting. Uh, oh, or yeah. is it just I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, some, yeah. 
some yeasts that are creating something and uh yeah well we'll let's I will say we'll follow up on this and, and learn more about it. Maybe we will. <laughs> probably we won't. Uh, probably we won't, though. Uh, last last little bit of feedback here before we um, we have a couple minutes left to talk about some some new stuff uh, is uh, feedback on um, our glitter discussion from a few episodes ago. And uh, this not only is this is. Um, from uh, uh, Doug Hindem uh, from uh, Fermenting Food Safety dot uh, you know fer- Fermenting Food Safety guy, uh, and he said uh, listening to your show on glitter and thought you might find this craft beer trend quote interesting. And not only is there glitter in your coffee, Don, but also there's some uh, glitter beer out there uh, that you can get. And so he sent us a, a link. Uh, from something that I saw also uh, going around the internet this week from uh, craftbeer.com that says, as, as if craft beer couldn't get any more magical, there's a new shiny trend in brewing that'll sparkle your socks off, glitter beer. And it is um, it, it, local here in uh, North Carolina, a place called Dirty Bull, which I've been to, and it's they're using glitter that's completely edible and absolutely mesmerizing. And so my... Um, my challenge is over the next uh, couple of weeks, I'm going to go to Dirty Bull and do a little more uh, research on this and find out what they're like, what they're actually using. So, so this, so have you, you but you have not been to this plate place. I yet. have been to this place, but when I went, they didn't have any glitter beer. Okay, all right. I, I don't know. Does it? Does that look good to you? Uh, it doesn't I, look good to me. Well, I mean, things that. I mean, there are things I mean, that I eat that don't look good to me. <laughs> uh, but I did like the answer from uh, the manager of Dirty, Dirty Bull Brewing Company, who, who, when he was asked, what's the magical ingredient? And he said, we use the uh, only the best locally harvest glitter from free-range grass-fed raised unicorns. <laughs> That's so good. I'm going to go find out. Where's my yeah. bell? That's good. <laughs> Well, good. Well, and, and thanks, and thanks very much to Doug for for sharing that. Um, uh, this is this is really quite interesting. Obviously, this whole uh, glitter thing um, is, is, is 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 yeah, is quite is quite interesting. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Doug, for uh, for sharing that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so there are a couple of things that we you know, we talked a lot about feedback, but there was one thing I wanted to get to before. Um, we, we moved on today cause we have a common interest in frozen vegetables. And, um, so last week, uh, there was, um, an outbreak of Listerian frozen vegetables in Europe that was announced. And so this, uh, was from a technical report that was put out by EFSA, the, uh, European food safety authority. And the report is a multi-country outbreak of Listeria monocytogenes, serogroup, IVB, multi-locus sequence type 6 infections probably linked to frozen corn. And so here's the skinny on this. Um, Whole genome sequencing showed there were 32 cases and six deaths that go back uh, to 2015 in five EU member states, Austria, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and the UK. Um, epidemiologically it's being linked to frozen corn or had been linked. And then through an investigation, um, the corn, the, and this was an investigation that appears to have taken quite some time, uh, was linked to, uh, a, a batch, uh, of frozen corn 
in a Polish company, uh, and that f- Polish company uh, tested all all batches of their um, uh, of their corn and found. Um, and this is what I want to want to talk to you about is they they found uh, the outbreak strain in uh, a, a level of 150 CFU, CFUs per G. And this is in a frozen corn product that is considered by the manufacturer to be not ready and has um, cooking instructions on it. So so put a pin in 150 um, CFU uh, per gram, so above the tolerance of 100. Um uh, the uh, the same uh, or a, a bunch of um, not same, but some another company that was linked to this uh, Polish company in Austria um, produced a product uh, in 2017. And it also tested positive for Listeria monocytogenes in 2017 and 16. I hope you're okay and you didn't just fall off your chair. Uh, I threw um, it's terrible. I apologize. I should have muted. I threw I threw my I was finished with my tea and I threw my teacup into my trash can thinking it wouldn't make enough no, wouldn't make any noise on the microphone. So I apologize for that. Oh, it's all right. It was good. Um so so again, uh doesn't say whether it was the outbreak strain, but this was positive for Listeria monocytogenes in 2017 and 16. Um and so the last piece that I that I highlighted here as I read through this report is about the stuff that I'm interested in is, okay, so people got frozen corn that had listeria in it. The the outbreak has been linked to it. We don't know exactly how much, but we know that in one of these uh, companies that's been linked, it was as low as 150 CF, uh, CFUs per gram. Um, and here's the, the part about the people. Information on corn consumption was not routinely requested during patient interviews in the affected countries, and only four patients were interviewed about corn consumption. However, no traceability and microbiological information was available on the corn consumed by these um, Finnish and Swedish patients. It's worth noting that the frozen corn products were not considered by the producer to be ready to eat, and the consumers may have eaten the product without having cooked them properly. Um, so, this, you know, let, let's let's talk about this for the next uh, eight minutes before my heart out. What, you know... What what I think could could be the case and could could have happened uh, is these frozen products were used and not raid. You know, they're not is supposed to be cooked, but they weren't. They were used in a way where they were probably thrown. And this is just me guessing and and summarizing from how we may have ended up with this problem. They were thrown into a dish, a salad, a something that uh, was stored at room temperature or the frozen corn was was then um, slacked or or made. So it sat and became cool or held at room temperature, but then, you know, integrated into this into this other dish and that there was some. Um, potential for for growth, but man, how do you go from let's let's make the assumption that the contamination rate was really low? How do you go from that rate to um, uh, you know illnesses? And and is this what we don't know? Is are these immunocompromised individuals? Are they elderly? Is that what what does this population look like? You know that information is not really in this. Um, in this technical report, but what you know, what's what's ha- what do you think's happening here? Well, I don't know, I, but I sure want to talk to those thirty-two people, right? Uh, or at least thirty-two minus right. the six that died, and I, or I want to talk to the family members of the people that died, and I want to know what's their immune state. I want to know 
how they could have consumed corn, right? I mean, there's um, consumption of frozen corn, is, corn has been confirmed by two patients, one in Finland, one in Sweden. A Danish patient reported consumption of mixed frozen vegetables, which could have included corn. Um, uh, the Finnish patient confirmed consumption of frozen corn on one suspected brand. Um, but uh, there's still, there's just a huge amount of unknowns, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I would like to know something about the plants that produce this frozen corn. What were their listeria control programs? Did they do any finished product sampling? Again, you know, one of the points that I've been making is that frozen foods should have a tolerance. Um, I, I'm less interested in the debate about whether it's ready to eat or not ready to eat. Um, you know, but, but really more about like what's, what's really going on in those plants. Um, yeah, there's just, we know enough to obviously for the epidemiologists who have to have declared this an outbreak, although the title does say probably linked to frozen corn, but there's just, we just need way more information, uh, you know, uh, and I, and I've got some ideas of what I'd like to know. So, yeah. Right. Right. And, and I mean, I guess the, the the bad part is that we probably won't know um and and i uh we were at a meeting um you know about um frozen foods where um someone who who we know is in the world of epidemiology was asked a question about um you know consumption and uh outbreak investigations and his response is yeah we don't um we don't often follow up because the epidemiologists in a lot of cases are interested in solving the detective work, right? Like let's right. connect the dots. And once the dots are connected, there isn't a motivation to go then say, well, we know what the product is. That's what he meant by connecting the dots. But what were the practices that led to it that we can learn from that help us in the risk mitigation world? Um, that's not often uh, at the forefront of an epidemiologist's uh, mind in, in his estimation. Right. Oh, we do. We um, do which have, is, puts us in an interesting pair. Yeah, and we do. We do have some information here. Uh, reading from the article, um, it looks like the the population is definitely skewing older. Right. So, um, right. The Austria the Austrian cases are both over eighty five. Uh, the Denmark in Denmark uh, range from thirty seven to seventy four. Uh, Finland, uh, 22 to 92. Well, here's the thing. You know their ages. Instead of telling us 22 to 92, um, give us give all us the of ages. the ages, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Sweden, it's 70 to 94. Uh, United Kingdom, it's well, 22. And then, if, and, and then you know what? If it's, if it's women um, and they're in the childbearing years, tell us whether they were pregnant or not. Tell us that. You know, because that's, exactly. that, that's immunocompromised, right? Yep. yep. And give us a mean and give us a median. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. So we can even if you don't want to give us, uh, you know, for privacy reasons, everybody's age. So um, anyway, uh, I do have a heart out, Don. Um, so I think that's I think this is an episode. Can, can I can I can I really quickly ask yes. you whether wetting your hands is washing your hands or not? <laughs> so we could link to this Lifehacker article that uh, uh, was was sent to me on Twitter uh, from uh, Jake. Uh, get back up again. One on Twitter. Yes, so I think that wetting your hands is is not uh, washing your hands, but it does play. It, there is it does play an effect. Thank you, thank you. Ding. All right, <laughs> I'm good to go. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, well, that's an episode, and uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be back at it in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Bye, Don. Bye, Ben.
so this one is yours. This one's mine. Can you give me the audio? Because I've had a poor network connection, and I don't. It doesn't always get. It's been on your side of things. Like I'm sure I'm recording my voice, all right. But especially the last twenty minutes, you were coming through a little gangly. Okay. Um, yeah. So I you I also was having some audio problems, but doesn't sound like it was as bad as you. So I will put the audio in into Dropbox. Okay, and then I, I'll evaluate which one's better. Sounds good. Um, and, you know, we could always yeah. try splitting it. Um, it's just it's more work because you got to line the track, oh. tracks up. But yeah. we're not doing that. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so this one's mine. I just sent you. I think what it, what I think is our show title, okay. which is um, free range grass fed unicorns. Okay, it works unicorns. for me. It works for me. That's good. It was the best thing. Yeah, um, and. Yeah. Okay. So let's look here real quick. What um, what works for you? So the week of the sixteenth, we're both at CFP, right? Um, and and I think we're back. Like I could probably do the twentieth. Okay. Do, Friday. do you? Uh, so, so Fridays so, aren't great for you. Yeah. So two weeks from today is actually uh, the twelfth. Before we go to CFP. Oh, <laughs> good point. Um, that works. Okay. Uh, no, I have a defense. That doesn't work. Okay. Um, could you? I know it's not ideal for you, but are you at any cho- chance available m- the m- uh, Friday morning of the thirteenth? I'm. I'm or, not. I've got a faculty meeting. Yeah, we and I have a faculty meeting in the afternoon that day. Um, the twelfth. Well, here, let me let me look at this. I have, I've got a window. I have from noon till three on the twelfth available. After we have, and in fact, it's probably earlier than that because we have writing buddies at eleven, yeah. and I don't have a defense until three. So we could just go right after writing buddies. Okay. If that works, that absolutely works. So I'll pencil in, I'll okay. pencil in noon to two. Um, but we could we could always start as soon as writing buddies ends, and that gives you even more time. So. Perfect. Okay, put that in right now. All right. Got to go. All right. Have a good class. I'll put the audio and the show notes in Dropbox. Thanks. Bye. Bye.